Welcome to Pastor Stephen Samuel's podcast, where it's our desire that you'll be encouraged and empowered to live as a disciple-making follower of Jesus. I'm a little bit of a church history nerd, and uh, it's not, how do I say this? It's not uh, unusual, the season of time that we're in, as far as the tension in our country and our community and families and relationships It's not unusual as in it's never happened before. We've been at this place before as the global church. There's been much, much, much worse times in church history than what we're going through. Now, I know you're thinking, surely, Stephen, that's not encouraging. It is encouraging because the news is the church survived. And not just survived a little bit, survived and came out stronger than ever before, right? And by the church, I don't mean the organizational church or like us, the Assemblies of God, or whatever denomination. By the church, I mean those devout followers of Jesus who adhere to his teachings and live their life in devotion to him, they continued the work, and that's how we got to where we're at today. So there's, even though we feel right now we're in a very jaded, very unstable place, let me tell you the truth. We're standing on the most stable place we can stand in relationship with Jesus. And so you can take heart in that. But as I thought back over church history and and things like that, I was preparing for this, I feel like there's three different groups of people right now in our community, right? Uh, And I don't mean community as in church, I mean community as in the city, county, area of southeast Texas. There's three groups of people, and I probably muddy more, but it can apply to the whole of American church. Number one is um, there's the, what we call the ambivalent people, means they don't really care what's going on, you know, as long as they can keep going to work, keep collecting a paycheck, keep going on in life, they're just going to keep going on. And it's not that they don't know what's going on, they have the information, but whether they care or not, and a lot of times people get to that place when you're just so weary emotionally with everything that's going on, after a while you're like, eh, I don't really care anymore, right? You cannot care for a short period of time, but eventually the reality of what's happening around us will eventually show up at your doorstep. Right? And so that's the first group, the ambivalent people. The number two is the, and we've all run into this group, right? It's the agitated people. People that are just angry at everything that's going on. And listen, they're on both sides of whatever aisle you draw, right? There's the angry people because people feel like they've been stripped to their freedoms, their liberties. They lost their Facebook account, they lost their Twitter followers, and they're angry, right? Because when things are taken from you, you feel a sense of, I've been violated, whether it's Material things or immaterial things or or rights and liberties, right? There's the angry people, right? Or agitated people, I should say. And listen, anger is okay, but the Bible clearly says you can be angry, but don't sin, right? And we're going to talk a little bit about kind of what that can look like as we go on. But anger becomes sin when you begin to badmouth people, when you begin to gossip, when you begin to uh, badmouth a political party, or you begin to say, call names, and you get to fear kind of intrepidatious place of maligning the nature and the character of Jesus in what you do. Does that make sense? When you get to that place, then you're no longer in the spirit of Christ. Now listen, I will give you a little bit of balance here. Jesus did a little name calling himself. You know, when he called sin, sin, when he called hypocrisy, hypocrisy, I mean, calling people a brood of vipers is not a compliment by any stretch. You know what I'm saying? And then when people say, oh, look, Herod's going to come after you, he said, go tell that old fox, (laughs) 
I've got work to do, and I'm going to work in the day. And it wasn't a compliment to call him a fox either, you know. He was a shrewd man. And so I'm not saying that gives us a license to be name-calling. I'm just saying there's a way to express your feelings without getting ugly. Does that make sense? Good rule of thumb, if your wife doesn't approve of doing it or your mama doesn't approve, you probably shouldn't be doing it. You know what I'm saying? Okay, just telling you. So there's the agitated, there's the ambivalent, and then the last group of people is what we call the agreeable people. Those are people that kind of in your corner, they think the way you think, they act the way you act. They're probably, hopefully, <coughs> in your church circles and in your work circles, they're the agreeable people. Now, as we look at those three groups of people, the ones that need, the Jesus, need Jesus the most are in the two groups you don't like. And let's just be honest. The ones that need Jesus the most are the ones that disagree with you and they don't care. They disagree with you and they're ticked off. And they need the hope of the gospel more than that group of people that you spend most of your time with. And that should give us pause to say, okay, what am I doing to reach the lost? Because the commission to go and reach the lost is not suspended when there's a pandemic. It's not suspended when there's an election year. It's not suspended when you're upset. It's not suspended when your job's on the line. The commission to reach the lost, go and make disciples of all nations, continues. I was talking to the uh, high school chapel today, and I said, you know, we've kind of fallen into this belief system that the big question that will be posed to us on the day of judgment, which that day is coming to the believer and the unbeliever, unbelievers are judged according to their works, and some will eternity in hell, very severe. They're judged according to their behavior. But then the believers are rewarded according to their behavior, right? I mean, it's in your Bible. The question that posed the most is not, did you believe Jesus is God? Because all believers believe he is. The question posed to the believer is not, did you pray a prayer of salvation? Right? The doctrine of praying a prayer of salvation is not in the scriptures. The question that's posed the most is this, did you obey what Jesus said? Did you obey? When he said now, a lot of times we interpret that obey as staying away from sin, but that's not what he's talking about. Because if the righteousness of God is placed in you, then sin really doesn't have priority on judgment day. What has priority is, did you obey with the righteous nature that was put inside of you? Were you responsible with so great of salvation that you were given? And so if I stand before the Lord on judgment day, and, and I've lived... 42, 43, however long I'm going to live, 50, 60 years of my life, 70, 80, 90 years of my life, and I've made no disciples, I've led no one to follow Jesus in a way that they can make disciples, then you know what I've done with my whole life? Disobeyed. And that's a great, grievous thought. If my whole 50 years, 60 years, however long you've been serving Jesus, you make two disciples, you have really disobeyed. And I'm not saying the number is the quantity, but I'm saying we have a work to get done. And so if we're not making effective disciples, and listen, it starts with your family. It starts with your kids. It starts with your grandkids. Those are the people that need to be discipled the most. And those are, coincidentally, the people you have the most influence over. Right? C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, speaks about storge love. And he talks about how children are born with an innate ability or default 
to believe everything you say. Some of us had a lot of fun with that when our kids were young. You tell them all kinds of crazy stuff, and they just straight up believe you. I remember my little cousin, Ranjit, when he was born, I remember that's when I first started grew out, grew out a beard, you know. He came up to me and said, what is that? And I thought, I'm going to have some fun with this. I'm going to say, it's called a chicken. And for the next year, everybody that had a beard, he'd look at him and say, a chicken. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Kids believe everything you say. You have the most influence to make disciples out of your family. You know what I'm saying? That's what we get. And I'm not saying that to incite fear, but definitely to, to kind of wake us up to this reality that if we're not making disciples, we're really living a life of disobedience. We really are. And we have to own that. You say, well, Stephen, I can't recover X amount of years. You can't. But being obedient today will change what happens tomorrow. Right? Being obedient today begins to change things. So how many people are you discipling, leading to Jesus? And I don't mean just, hey, pray the sinner's prayer with me. I mean, pray the sinner's prayer with me, and I'm going to show you with my life how to follow Jesus every day that I can. I'm discipling about six guys right now. And listen, I have to work it around my work schedule, bring them in, spend time before, before I come into the office or sometimes after I, come into the, after I leave the office. And I have to work it in, balance family and work and all the responsibilities of dad. You know, dad's got to do this stuff for the kids and the honey-do list. I mean, we all are busy. But when we get before the father, the thing that he's going to ask is, did you obey? Because remember that little story in the book of Matthew where he says, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do this in your name? And he'll say, depart from me. And the, the, the judgment is, you workers of iniquity. They were doing their own thing. Whatever pleased their nature. We think they did abominable things. No, it's just when you serve yourself all the time, it produces iniquity, selfishness. Right? And then he looks at the sheep and he says, what? Well, enter into the joy of your Lord. And the inference or the difference is one obeyed and one didn't obey. It wasn't one just believed and the other didn't believe. Believing produces behavior, right? Faith without works is, we all know that passage, with faith without works is dead. Okay? So as we look at these three groups of people, the ambivalent, agitated, the agreeable, those ambivalent to what's happening right now and happening in the world, those that are agitated, those are where the lost people are. How do we effectively engage in ministry when there's so many people that are offended with us? How do we do that? Well, Stephen, you got to get a psych degree, I guess. No, there's some simple steps. And I want to look at this text in Matthew chapter 10. And I'll start at verse 5 and just kind of go through the verses. And then we'll get to the last part, which is in the book, chapter 10. But first, let me say, the main thing, the first thing we must do is keep the main thing, the main thing. And you know what the main thing is? Is the kingdom thing. The main thing, keeping the main thing, the main thing means keeping us on kingdom things. Which is what? Obeying the commands of Jesus. And Jesus speaks to the disciples here in Matthew 10. He says, verse 5 says, these 12 Jesus sent out, and before that passage he lists the disciples, he sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the ways of the Gentiles. Do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. How did those early disciples stay focused on reaching the people that hated them the most? That's the big question. 
the people that disagreed with them, maybe not hated them, but disagreed with them most. Because who did the early church, first century Jews reach? They reached other Jews who were indoctrinated into Judaism, directly opposed by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes to what Jesus was teaching. So they were the agitated group, right? The Romans, the Greeks are ambivalent to Jewish culture, and so they were the group that just didn't care about Judaism. And how did they reach them? They first, they went on this commission that Jesus gave them. He said, go to this place. Don't go among the Samaritans, only go to the Jews. Let me tell you a little secret. Everybody is called to some locus or group of people. Whether it's your family, your workplace, the community that you relax with and hang out with. But all of you have a group of people in your life, maybe 30 to 40. If you're popular like Terry LeBlanc, you got like 500, right? <laughs> you have a group of people that you influence. And you're called to bring Jesus to them. Even Jesus, when he's sending the disciples, he says, go to this place. This is where you're called. Listen, he's not sending you just to a geographic location many times. He's sending you to a group of people. You have a group of people that you're connected with. And here's the thing. Stay focused on that group. Don't get distracted in everybody else's group, right? You have a lane to stay in. And how do you, how do you stay in that lane of ministry and be effective in what you're doing? I'll tell you just from a little business sense when I was going through college, when you find what you're good at doing, the ministry you're good at doing, stick with it and don't compare to anybody else. Because comparison is the thief of joy. Right? Well, man, I led 10 people to the Lord this year, and I'm discipling five or six of those, and that's awesome. But then I compared to brother so-and-so, and he's led 500 people to the Lord, and all of a sudden, I feel like a failure. Right? Listen, don't compare. Stay in your lane and say, God, this is where God's called me. Some of you, listen, you have relationships that you've cultivated for decades. You have influence in people's lives that you've had for decades, and God's called you to stay in that place of speaking into people's lives. Right? Stay in that place. Accelerate in your lane, like ministry or calling. Let me let's tell you a little diversions. Number one, don't fight battles that, you're, that are not yours to engage. There's so many times we get caught up in other people's stuff. Right? I'm not looking at anybody. Just kidding. You get caught up in everybody's stuff. And here's what happens. It's emotionally exhausting when you get caught up in other people's stuff that you're not called to do. And I'm not saying it's bad stuff. Sometimes it's really good stuff. But God hasn't called you to that. That's why every decision of how you're going to do ministry and who you're going to reach has to be brought to the counsel of God's word and the Holy Spirit's voice. God, do you want me doing this? There's a lot of good things to do. But that doesn't mean it's your thing to do. Okay? The next thing, don't fight for other people's offenses. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19, and I'm not going to read the whole passage, but it starts off and it says, these six things the Lord hates. Listen, if there's a list of things that God hates, you want to be off that list. Right? And then he goes through the list. You can read it, the fear, uh, you know, things like strife and hatred and killing of innocent blood. And, but the last thing or the thing that he says, it's the abomination, right? That's the old King James word for stay away from this. Here's what God really hates. You know what it is? One who sows discord among the brethren. There's a word for that in our culture. It's called church gossip. <laughs> and it's very dangerous. You know why? Because you can turn people off to Jesus with your mouth in the church. I know nobody in here is guilty, right? I've made that mistake many times where I'm running my mouth like a knucklehead 
and someone gets deeply offended and they leave the church. Or maybe they're still in church, but they're no longer connecting with Jesus because we're just a bunch of hypocrites. Let me tell you something. The reason it's so dangerous, besides all the obvious reasons, is it distracts you from the work you're supposed to be doing, right? If you're called to make disciples, you stay in the place of guarding your mouth because every word, listen, Jesus says this, not Stephen says this, not Paul says this, not Peter says this. Every word that man shall speak, he will give an account for. What does that mean? It means every word that man shall speak, he will give an account for. And you can hash it out theologically how that plays out, whether it means in this life or in the life to come, but I think the indication is in both. In this life, you can destroy a lot of things with wrong words. And in the life to come, you can destroy a lot of people with your words. You'll give an account for that. Look here. Another way to, st- to fall out of the calling that God's called you is when you get into good causes, but they're not your causes. I remember, it's a funny story, and we'll move on from here on this point. When I was, uh, I think I was in junior high, this lady came to my dad's church, and we were here in Bridge City, and there was just something weird about me. You ever meet those people, there's just something weird, but you don't say anything, you're just like, I don't know, we're going to have to figure you out here. So she came to the church, and after service that day, and, and, uh, and she came up to my dad, like, I have a ministry Pastor Sam, I got a ministry. And I was just, you know, sitting there listening. They weren't trying to keep her quiet. And she said, my dad was like, okay, what's your ministry? Because she wanted the church to get on board with her ministry, you know. She said, I feel like God's called me to pray for animals. And I looked at her and I thought, okay, that's a new one in my book. Pray for animals, yes. And so my dad kind of investigated a little bit more. He's like, yeah, I feel like God's called me to just lay hands on dogs and cats. And I'm like, okay. Listen, it sounds like a fun cause, but you got to find that in the Word. Right? I'm not saying I don't like dogs and cats. They're okay. But I'm just saying, that ministry is not in the scriptures. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Come to find out, lots of deliverance later, a few demons cast out later, she had a new purpose in life. You know what I'm saying? Here's what I'm telling you. Sometimes good causes are not God causes. Right? They're good. But they're not God's. And listen, God's causes have an eternal view. Right? An eternal view. And they're always concerned the souls of people, right? Keep going with me. Don't be angry at me. I'm not a pet hater, okay? I can feel some of your, okay? Um, Jesus says, as you preach, go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Let me tell you something. A great way to engage the lost, people especially that are opposed to our way of thinking, your way of thinking, your way of believing, your political platform. Here's the way. You ready? One of the key ways you can do them is reach them is to put obedience into your schedule. It's not just going to happen. You have to put obedience into your schedule. You have to take the time to go in, preach, heal. Look at all the verbs in this sense. Preach, heal, cleanse, raise, cast out. I mean, that's some activity. We're not just sitting around thinking about these things. We're going out in doing them. And I listed some areas that you can do them just in case you felt like there was some kind of deficit of obeying God's voice available to you today. Number one, volunteer in kids' church. Volunteer in the nursery. Come on, Missy. Let me tell you something. Some of the most impactful people in my life 
or kids' church leaders. Ninety, I think it was ninety-eight. They did a study, and it said ninety, eighty to ninety percent of pastors in America came to know Jesus before they were twelve years old. You know where the next generation of pastors are? Kids' church. Volunteer. Nursery. Volunteer. Well, Stephen, I just really enjoy the fellowship. I like to come early and hang out with my friends. I get it. We're not saying volunteer every Sunday. Pick one Sunday out of the month. Get in there. Serve. Well, Stephen, I deal with kids all week. Then you have been called <laughs> to go. Reach some kids. I'm amazed at how many times I go around the world and I talk to missionaries, hundreds of them, and the majority of them, I would say to the tune of like 60 to 70% of them, felt called to missions in kids' church by a children's pastor, but many times by a parent who took a little extra time with them and discipled them. That's what it is. It's not a one time you get up and preach in front of kids' church, you're done. It means, hey, how's your family doing every week? How's your life? What's going on? And we're not talking deep intellectual conversations because they're kids, right? But just showing them the love of an adult who's following Jesus, right? Another way, ready? Volunteer a few hours a week. There's a place uh, called the Hope Clinic in Beaumont. They're always looking for volunteers, especially men, to come out there and volunteer to talk to other men about what it means to be a dad. It's a big deal. Find areas in our community to volunteer. Every, um, what day is this day? Wednesday, right? First Wednesday of every month, I go out to the Dream Center, which is a rehab program, a Christian rehab program, and I spend the morning with those guys. Listen, it's not just find a need that you feel sympathetic toward. Find a place where you can pour your life into. Find a place where you can give something. Some of you, God has given you great ability with your hands. Help people build things. Help people do work at their house. Spend time with them, especially if they don't know Jesus. Find them and help. Some of the greatest conversations I've had about Jesus is when I'm helping somebody who's an unbeliever do something that they just need help with. Put up a fence. Dig, dig a swimming pool hole. Whatever it is. Find a place to serve. Keep going with me. You ready? Give your time to call friends who have been isolated. And this is a great way to, to do something even now amidst this COVID craziness. Look around. There's a lot of people that aren't here. You can get on your phone and start calling people and saying, hey, how are you doing? Make a list of three to four people every day that you can call, whether you know them or not, right? Find them, call them, spend time talking to them. You would be amazed how many people I've talked to that I've texted and said, man, I haven't talked to somebody in weeks. Or I've been isolated from the church. I haven't spent any time with anybody and just get a text message. Just get a phone call. Find a way to, the Bible says here, you have freely received, freely give. Give what you've been given. Use your gifts and skills daily in a daily routine to bring others to Jesus. Then Jesus goes on here and he says to the disciples, provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics or sandals, nor staff for workers worthy of his hire. Whatever city you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there until you go out. Now whatever city or town, I'm sorry. I'll stop. Let's go back to verse 1. Whatever city or town you enter, inquire who it is worthy and stay there until you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. First he hits this topic of finances because that's the biggest um, hurdle that a lot of us hit when we want to be 
generous with our time and energy. Well, Stephen, I just don't have any money. Listen, if you start spending time or making uh, headway into spending time with people, you can trust God to provide the finances. And sometimes it means you foregoing some of your luxuries to give to other people, right? And he tells the disciples, listen, don't worry about those things. Stop worrying about the future and finances because those things really cripple our ability to see what God wants to do. Little note here as we're talking about this. Financial security is balanced by two things. You ready? Giving and good stewardship. If, you do a, if you're a great giver, but you're a horrible steward of what you have, you'll never have enough. What do I mean by stewardship? Budgeting, right? You don't spend more than you're bringing in. You spend about 80% of what you're bringing in, so you have about 20% to give and to save. That's a good ratio, right? But if you're not budgeting, you can give and give and give and give yourself into a place of financial distress. And I've heard, you know, all the, all the <laughs> charismatic preachers, you can never outgive God. I get that. But you can definitely outgive your budget. And you can get in some trouble. You got to have a budget. Listen, I have a budget how much money I'm going to give every month. I set it aside in savings, and then when there's a need, uh, an evangelist or somebody on the street or whoever that I run into, people at the church, and they ask for help, if the Holy Spirit says give, I've got money to give because I'm setting aside a little bit out of every paycheck to give, and I'm a steward of that. What happens when you run out? Then I say, hey, you got to wait till next month. <laughs> but I have a budget, right? And even sacrificial giving, I'm saving up, so when God tells me to give sacrificially, I have something to sacrifice, right? You can't sacrificially give if you have nothing to sacrifice. Does that make sense? So even giving is balanced with good stewardship and generosity. Okay, we'll move off of that. I like to talk about money. I don't know what it is. The next thing, if your house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. If it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that city, shake off the dust from your feet. This is the last point in this idea of how do I engage the lost? How do I get to people that are opposed to the way I think and believe and feel? You must follow the peace of God. And let me define what that means, because it's not just an emotional response. Peace comes from the cumulative wisdom of these three things. Number one, hearing God's voice to you through your conscience. You can hear God's voice. Let's say you start a conversation, you, you said, I'm going to go out and start meet with, or you say to yourself, I'm going to go out and meet with somebody, and inside of you, you can feel a little hesitation, Holy Spirit saying, mm, not a good idea right now. That's good. Now, some of you are like, I feel that about everybody. What's <laughs> so there's two other things that you can balance this out with. The peace of God in your heart. The second thing, the reading and studying and memorizing of God's word. The more of God's word I put inside of me, the more clearly I can discern between my emotions and the voice of the Holy Spirit in my conscience. The Bible says like this, Hebrews chapter 4.12, that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to discern, discern between our thoughts and the Holy Spirit. You don't have to word in you. You're going to have an inability to discern between God's voice and your voice. That's why reading God's word every day studying God's word, meditating on God's word, and as we talked about last time, memorizing God's word, guess what it does? It gives you discernment, right? Everybody's always like, well, brother, I got a spirit of discernment. My first question is, how much do you read of the Bible? 
haven't read it in three weeks. You don't have any discernment. You have an emotion, right? But you don't have discernment because discernment comes with the intake of God's word, okay? So first, it's hearing God's voice in your conscience. Then it's reading, studying, and memorizing God's word that helps you balance what you feel you're hearing of the voice of God. The last thing, the counsel of godly leadership. And this is one we all kind of stumble on every once in a while. But listen, God puts people around us to tell us what he's thinking. Because sometimes, even in our quiet time, we're not getting a message. We read God's word and we're not getting anything. And then at that point, you can go to somebody and say, hey, I'm a, I want to go do this. And you bring it to people you trust. Now, let me tell you a little, little uh, footnote on this. If you trust people's wisdom when they were agreeing with you, you need to trust their wisdom when they disagree with you. Right? You say, oh, Pastor Lloyd, I'll take his advice all the time. It's always a yes, yes, yes. And all of a sudden he says, no. It's like, brother, I don't think you're hearing God anymore. Well, you thought he was hearing God the last five times, and he said yes, and now the no is not God. Let me tell you, there should be leadership, godly authority in your life that you relinquish your ability to say no to because you trust them when they say yes. There should be people in your life that you relinquish your ability to say no to because you trust them when they've said yes, right? There's men in my life that I go to, and when I'm in a, sometimes even a dire straits, just simple things, and I have an idea, and I say, hey, I want to do this, hey, I want to do this, and I go to them and say, what do you think? And they're, knowing what I'm asking, sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit, and they can tell me, yes, that's a good idea, or Stephen, hold up, you know what I'm saying? Work on your tan a little bit more, do something else, you know? That was a joke. Y'all didn't even laugh. I have to run that joke by him. <laughs> but there's people in my life. To give you an example, we were, uh, we're going to start a men's fellowship breakfast in a couple of weeks. And it starts February 2nd. It'll be down the road here at, at Denny's on Highway 62. And I was thinking about it. Lord, should we do this? Should we do this? I really don't want to get up another. So in my heart, I'm like, I don't want to get up another morning at 5 a.m. or whatever time I got to get up to do this. So in my heart, didn't have a lot of peace about it. You know what I'm saying? But then I'm reading God's word, and he's speaking to me about making disciples and spending time. I'm like, okay. And so then I called my buddy, a couple of my buddies. I called Terry LeBlanc. I said, Terry, come talk to me about this. What do you think about this? He's like, oh, yes, I'm bored. And I called my buddy David Henson, who has a men's fellowship in a couple of places. And he said, oh, yes, absolutely on board, you know. And I'm listening to the counsel of these men, along with the word of God, along with the counsel of scriptures. I don't just make rash decisions, Right? I have to balance all that out. And most of the times, especially in heavy decisions, you need to have all three concurring. Peace of God in your heart, the counsel of the scriptures, and the authority of the people in your life. That keeps you from getting derailed into places you don't need to be. Does that make sense? Okay. Jesus says, and this is really what I want to harp on tonight. Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more terrible for the day and for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Speaking of cities that reject the disciples that go into them. But here's where I want to hit. He says, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You know what happens in a sheep-wolf story, right? Dinner. <laughs> the wolf wins every time. But he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. The only time that scenario goes well for the sheep, if there is a shepherd, right? Someone to defend the sheep. 
And our reliance on reaching the lost comes from God's shepherding voice walking with us. When he says, I send you out a sheep among wolves, he doesn't just leave it there. He says, therefore, this is how you get through it. You ready? You be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. What are the wolves that we're facing right now? I'll tell you. Sorry if it's going to offend you, but I won't tell you. What are the wolves we're facing right now? Number one, the fear of sickness and disease is a wolf. And it has shred the hearts and minds of people that we love. I'm not saying there's not sickness and disease. Sickness and disease has always been there. But the fear of that has now been so played up that it literally is, has trapped people in their homes. The fear has overwhelmed them, right? I'm not against quarantining. I'm not against people isolating themselves. Don't take it the wrong way. But I'm just telling when that fear begins to mount on you to where now you're afraid to do anything, it's, it's taken too much territory in your heart. Let me tell you what the Bible says we're supposed to do. We're supposed to stand in the authority of God's word concerning our healing and move with wisdom and courage. We can't forget that God's commission to us is that he is a healing God. He is Jehovah Rapha, the Lord our healer. He didn't suspend that title because of pandemic. We have to believe God for healing. Whether you're sick or not, whether you get sick, when you get sick or when you're healthy, you have to believe God for healing. And you have to hold to that promise that by his stripes, I'm healed. And you have to fight for that. Now listen, I know it's easy to take offense because all of us, listen, I've buried close friends in the last few weeks. I've got a funeral this Friday for a very close friend who's died of COVID. But God is still a healer. And I have to hold that fear of death is not going to overtake me. Only the healing virtue of Jesus is what I'm placing my hope in. And come death or come life, nothing's going to separate me from that. Listen, it's a tough topic right now because everybody is grabbed, captured by, entangled with fear. And fear has no place in the heart and the mind of the believer. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love. And listen, a sound mind. I'm not saying be brazen and idiotic and do dumb stuff with your health. But I'm saying don't operate in fear. Choose to believe God for your health. Be courageous, walk in wisdom, but trust the Lord with your health. Keep going here. Sickness is real, and the emotional impact of sickness plus isolation plus fear is a fatal weapon of the enemy. It's one of the powerfulest tools that the enemy has used in a while. What are the other wolves we're facing? Nostalgia. This is a fun one, right? When everything gets back to normal, then I'll start being active and ministering to others. Let me tell you something. We may never go back to normal. There may never be another normal for a long time. And you can't put on pause what God's called you to do because that wolf is out there trying to lure you back into just the memory of what things used to be, right? We can't do that. The other wolf that we deal with, escapism. I'm just going to hold out till Jesus comes back, right? Bunker down, beef jerky, ramen noodles, ain't going nowhere. Hopefully Jesus will come back soon. That escapism, listen, that escapism will keep you in a place of isolation. 
you can't just say, I'm going to hold on till Jesus comes. Because here's the deal. This gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world, and then the end will come. So people who are hunkering down are delaying the end. Right? You want Jesus to come back? Get busy making disciples. I'm not saying that. Jesus said that. There are communities that are needing to be discipled. I'm not just saying they hear the gospel message. They need to be taught how to follow Jesus. That means it's the gospel of God's kingdom and reign in our lives. People have to see that. And until everybody sees the gospel of the kingdom, that means the rule and the reign of Jesus in our lives, the end will not come. It must be preached in all the world, right? The last time I looked, there were some 2 billion unreached people groups that couldn't get a missionary, don't have access to a missionary, don't have access to a Bible, and are too far from a church to get the gospel. Two billion the last time I looked. We got work to do. Okay, what can you do? Say, thanks, Stephen, for all the bad news. What do we do? The last wolf, and we'll hit into that. You ready? Don't entertain hatred against those who are contrary with their opinions and lifestyles. This is a very easy trap to fall in where we feel like it's okay to hate people. There's no room for hate. There's no place for hatred in the kingdom of God. Let me tell you a little secret. You can't save people you hate. It's just not going to work. So when you allow the media and social platforms and articles that you read to stir in you this hatred of a specific political group or a specific uh, generation of people or whatever you hate, then you are stopping the flow of God's ability through you. The love of God cannot come out of you when you hate people, right? There's no room for that. Listen, you can be passionate about whatever you're passionate about, but when it bleeds over into hating people, it's no longer passionate in a good sense. It becomes evil. And listen, people with religious conviction can be the most wicked of tyrants because they think they're doing God's service while they hate. And you're never doing God a service when you hate. Now listen, I have to tell myself that. I'm not the saint up here, you know what I'm saying? I've got to talk myself out of the tree every once in a while, too, and say, listen, buddy, you better settle down. The people that we are opposed to the most need the gospel the most. And they need to have that gospel presented to them through the channel of God's love. Keep going with me. <clears throat> what does it mean to be wise and innocent? The analogy of these traits seem to contradict, but the qualities of the serpent and the dove can be mutually practiced. Here's what I'm saying. Being wise means, wise as a serpent means to be judicious with understanding and with insight. Every time I'm engaging with people who think different than I am, I need to be judicious. What does that mean? Moral, fair, a man of balance, and not get caught up in my emotions of what they like and I don't like, or I like and they don't like. That's being wise, having insight into the heart of people, not just the offenses that they're trying to put out to you or you're trying to put out to them, right? The next thing it says, to be innocent as a dove means to be what? Guiltless or free of sin. No accusation can be brought against you of sinful behavior. You're guiltless, right? We can't be guiltless and hate people at the same time. We can't. How do we function in a wise and innocent, judicious way? 
and I'm going to give you these three, three tools. Is it three? Maybe four? I don't know. Three tools. Number one, persistent and consistent prayer for those who may be against your way of believing and thinking. Persistent and consistent prayer. Now, let me tell you, those two words mean two different things. Persistent means you keep at it, and you keep at it, and you keep at it until God touches them, or you go home to Jesus. Persistent. And listen, consistent means you make a plan to pray for people. I have a calendar that I need to revamp at this point where I pray for one person a day every day of the month. I don't have time to go into all the details, but I pray for the same people every month, one day, all day long. And as I'm praying for them and God gives me something to say to them, or sometimes I just shoot them a text, hey, I'm praying for you. But I pray for one person all day long every day of the month, right? And as I'm praying for them, here's what happens. God begins to move in their life. Every time. Some of them, it's taken me, it take me a few years to get through, but I'm praying on the 15th of every month for this person. And they get a text from me. Some of them don't realize it's on the same day of the month, every month. But that's okay. They get a text, hey, I'm praying for you. What can I pray for? Let me tell you something. Persistent, consistent prayer will soften your heart as well as their heart. But you've got to make a plan to pray for them. Right? The next thing. How, do we, how are we wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove? Being intentional in concern and love for the lost, especially when they're at odds with you. Being intentional in concern and love for the lost. I remember a story. The first time I went to North Africa, I was talking to a buddy of mine. Not really a buddy, he was just a pastor. I was talking to a pastor, and man, I told him where I was going to this heavily Islamic region. And buddy, he just got angry. I said, Stephen, why are you going to risk your life? You're a father, and at the time I had two kids. You're a father, you got two kids, you got a wife. Why are you risking your life to go to a people that are not going to listen to you? He says, Stephen, just let them all just go to hell. You stay here and enjoy what God's blessed you with. I mean, and he was serious. And I was like, oh my gosh. Let them go to hell? I mean, those were the exact words. How? How? Because his hatred for Islam had become so strong that he forgot that there's Muslims there that are people who need Jesus. It was very discouraging. I went home and I thought, maybe I'm just not supposed to go. But man, I could hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. They are the ones that I love. They are the ones you're created to reach. Now, I remember that mission trip, we preached the gospel to hundreds of Muslims. We'd fill up little villages. They would come out, two, three hundred in every village, and listen, many of them for the first time, to the message of a man named Jesus who wants to forgive them of their sins. Hundreds, and so many, dozens of them, blind eyes open, deaf ears open, miracles happen. I remember at one of the villages, at the end of the service, you know, we pray for everybody. You don't give altar calls in Muslim countries because nobody's going to respond. You know what I'm saying? And so at the end, you'd ask for prayer for the sick because everybody's sick because there's no health care system and they're living off of nothing and they're malnourished. So you start praying for the sick. And I remember this mother came up to me and my, my missionary buddy Rich was standing next to me. His mother came up to me. She had a baby in her hands. And through the translator, through our missionary, said, my baby can't walk. What can you do? 
You know how big your faith feels about that point? And man, the Holy Spirit just spoke to me and said, heal the sick, cleanse the leper, cast out demons, raise the dead. Freely you've received, freely give. It's all about well. There's no cameras around, no iPhones. We're going to go at this. Right? I didn't think about that. So I reached over, and you can't touch women in Islamic countries, and so I had to ask permission. But can I just touch the baby? You know, so I laid my hands on the baby, and I just prayed a quick little prayer. Lord, I just speak your healing into this baby, baby's legs. And then that was it. And then the mom took that little kid, set that little baby on the ground, and that little baby began to walk. Mom is crying. I'm crying. The missionary's crying like, oh, my God. Listen, if our hatred of them supersedes our love for the lost, the gospel will never go out. It won't. We have to be willing to lay down our lives. The last thing, and that's what we're going to focus on. We'll wrap this up. I don't know how much time I got left. The last thing is forgiving often. And this is where a lot of us, and I'll, I'll be honest, a lot of us struggle with. I struggle with. The way to reach people who are opposed to you against your way of thinking is learning how to forgive often. It has to be second nature to us to forgive. Almost to the point sometimes where people think, man, you're just such an idiot. You keep forgiving and they're going to keep hurting you. I'm not saying we, we advocate a life without boundaries, but we should never let forgiveness be a boundary. We have to forgive. I wrote this in page 124 of your book. Terry, it's in the book. When Jesus rose from the grave and appeared to his disciples, the first of test of their new righteousness dealt with their ability to forgive. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Then he said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Who do they need to forgive? If we take Jesus' statement in context, Jesus was empowering them to forgive those whom had who had him murdered, who had murdered him a few, got a typo there, a few days prior. How could the disciples be proclaimers of Jesus' resurrection if they harbored unforgiveness toward the masses of those who had chanted, crucify him? They needed a power greater, greater than what they possessed to forgive. You think about the trauma those disciples went through. Three days. We're not just talking the little, you know, uh, elementary kid production of Crucify Him. We're talking, they watched Jesus brutally beaten by the Romans while the Sadducees and Pharisees watched on and the crowd chanted, Crucify Him. When they stood at Pilate's uh, judgment hall, and he said, whom shall I release to you, Jesus or Barabbas? All the disciples screaming, Jesus, and the rest of the crowd paid off by the religious leaders, chanting, give us Barabbas. And Pilate says to them, then what shall I do with him who you call Christ? And they say to him, crucify him. Could you imagine the blood rushing out of their face, the, the agony, the torment of the one that they loved, commissioned to death, and their voice meaning nothing. And then they watch him mercilessly beaten. If you've seen the passion, probably a pretty good close image. 
and then drug through the streets of Jerusalem. And of course, when we watch the Passion and we watch those crucifixion movies, Jesus had a little sash around his waist, right? He was naked, drug through the city, laid on a wooden cross, spikes put through his hands and feet. They're watching this, the blood gushing out, his body drenched in pain and suffering. Then they lifted him up, and he's hanging on the cross, and it doesn't end there because then all those religious leaders are chanting and mocking and making fun of him as he's hanging naked on the cross until he gives up the ghost. And then they puncture his side, and blood and water flows out. Like, this is a traumatic, traumatic, horrible, PTSD inciting event. And three days later, Jesus shows up. And even though the the healing of his resurrection, you would think, would suffice for that, you know the torment of all of what those guys did is still there. The story wasn't over. And Jesus says to them, listen, unless you forgive, unless you forgive, those sins will not be forgiven. You would have thought the disciples like, well, let them just rot. You know what I'm saying? We're not forgiving nobody. But when he breathes on them the Holy Spirit, that's the first thing. He empowers them to forgive. Puts the nature of God in us by virtue of his spirit. But it's still a choice that you and I have to make where we forgive. We have to forgive with our heart, our emotions, and then with our mouth. It has to happen. And listen, I'm not saying you don't feel the pain. The pain is there. That's what makes forgiveness so authentic. If you didn't feel anything, there's no need to really drudge through the pain of forgiveness. You have to forgive. And he says here what? uh, Forgiving, let me tell you, is the only way of stopping the pain. See, I'll, I'll feel better once they get punished. I'll forgive them. But once God really avenges me, then I'll really forgive them. That's not forgiveness. That's vengeance. Well, Stephen, I'll forgive them, but I hope they rot in hell. That's not forgiveness either. That's not. And listen, I know there's many of us in here, we've been through some crazy, horrible stuff. But the only way the crazy and the horrible stops painting your heart is when you choose to forgive. Forgiving is not a feeling, it's a choice. Because forgiveness is tied to love. I'm not saying you got to love the people you forgive and, and, and oh, this is a per- I'm going to love them forever. But I'm saying you have to forgive. You have to let them off the hook of consequences to you. You've got to let them off the hook. You've got to quit wishing evil on them. That's what forgiveness looks like. Forgiving is not a feeling. It's a choice to emotionally and verbally let go of your right to exact revenge and punishment. Another quote from the book here. It says, truths about God are learned in Scripture, but the understanding of what God is like is often experienced through relationships with those who claim to know him. The only way the lost witness unconditional love is in experiencing it through us. When you can forgive people that have hurt you, it's the greatest witness of how God forgives. It's the greatest witness. I don't care what Roman road story you gotta tell. When you can forgive someone that's hurt you, it beats all the little gimmicks of trying to reach the lost. They see the love of God demonstrated, right? 
What kind of God are people experiencing when they're around you? Bitter, angry, unforgiving? Or is it a God who no matter what you do to them, they're still going to walk in kindness and forgiveness? Forgiveness is perpetual, which means what? You have to do it often. Sometimes the same person again and again and again. Jesus said, if your brother comes to you and asks for you, forgive him 70 times in a day. Seven times in a day, then you should forgive. Peter, like, wait a minute, seven, that's a lot. You sure, Jesus? Jesus, 70 times seven, you should forgive. Listen, I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying that's what Jesus is saying. And what does forgiveness mean? I'm letting loose of my need for punishment and vengeance. I'm letting them go. Right? <clears throat> forgiveness will always cost the giver more than the receiver. And let me tell you this. This is a very significant truth. It costs you to forgive. Sometimes it costs you money. Sometimes it costs you a lot of emotional pain. Sometimes it costs you the loss of material things. But it costs you to forgive. It always costs the forgiver more than the one that's getting the forgiveness. It costs God, his son, to forgive. To put his forgiving nature, I should say, in us, it cost him his son. But the flip side of that is this. Forgiveness brings greater joy to the giver than the receiver. The happiest person in heaven will be the father. You read the story of the prodigal son. It's a great story. The story is really not telling you about the son. It's telling you about the father. Because who had the most joy when the son came home? The son? The brother? The father. He's the party animal. Right? When you forgive people with all your heart, it will bring you the greatest joy. Right? Here's what I'm saying to you tonight as we wrap this up. Unless we learn how to deal with the wolves, we can't walk in the wisdom that God is offering to us. What is the tools, the things that he's put into our heart to say, hey, this is, how it's gonna, this is how you're going to overcome the enemy's assault against your community. We have to step into a place where we are consist, persistently and consistently praying for the lost, praying for the broken in our lives. Be intentional in finding ways to love them. Forgive often. Living in this place of constant forgiveness. Now listen. I'm not saying there's no boundaries in our life. There's not places where we say, hey, I forgive you, but here's the line. I get it. There's times you have to draw a line where you don't allow people to keep hurting you, but you still have to forgive. The question gets asked to me very often. Stephen, what if I, do I have to forgive people that don't repent? And I like to ask that question, answer that question with another question. Did Jesus forgive you before you repented or just after? The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He forgives us before we repent. In fact, many of us didn't come to faith in him until we realized that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The first one to lay down their life is the forgiver. And then maybe the ones that are receiving will lay down their life for Jesus. 
I want to encourage you, listen, there's so many things that could pull at your heart to pull you from the calling that God's put on your life. And these traps that we've talked about, we're all facing them. And I challenge you, even tonight, as you go home, say, God, what are you saying to me? Whom I need to, who do I need to reach? And help me get over these obstacles in my life that maybe have been highlighted tonight so I can begin to make disciples effectively. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Stephen's podcast. To connect with us or to order his book, A Reason for Hope, visit stephensamuel.org. You can also find him on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at, you guessed it, Stephen Samuel. Thanks for listening.